just a quick disclaimer that we're two musicians and composers who like to talk about a bunch of topics that are sometimes slightly beyond our wheelhouse. If we say anything that's factually incorrect, or even if you just disagree with us, we really love if you send us an email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know. Okay, so now should we get a little bit into the history of, of computer science? Yeah, let's do it, my buddy. <laughs> my bing bong. <laughs> I, I really like uh, the, the phrase, my guy. Like, let's do it, my guy. <laughs> uh-huh, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, okay, so, so one of the things I, that really fascinates me about computer science is that the it's based on principles of logic that go back literally thousands of years. So the basic structure of, of what we think of as logic, or most people would think of logic nowadays, comes from this thing called propositional logic, which mm. was developed by Aristotle. And that was about 2,300 years ago, back in Greece. So propositional logic is the sort of thing where you have certain statements that follow from certain other statements by necessity and there are lots of very complicated rules you can you can you know use to to derive the truth or falsity of statements given a bunch of other statements but the basic idea is that you have a statement like all men are mortal and then a statement like socrates is a man and so in propositional logic in propositional logic the conclusion you have to draw from that is that Socrates is mortal. Right. Yeah. Wow, that yeah. Seems really fundamental. Yeah. Yeah. And like all over the place in computer science. I think it, every day anyone who writes code is using that exact sort of logic. Yeah. Yeah. So then you can get to things like logic gates, right? Where mm. And that, and that's basically from what I understand that's I mean that's that's how like transistors and, and computers work is just a very very complicated series of like you know and or not not or not and that kind of thing mm -hmm. yeah i think it's like the not or gate like you could like potentially you could just use that one i think to get like fully functioning hmm. systems i forget i think there's what, a... what is the not or then okay so xor is is exclusive or okay so... what does that mean yeah, so a ZOR gate XOR is uh, either A or B, but not both. Right. Yeah. So basically, if the yeah if the gate has has signal coming from one point and not another point, then it's 
evaluates to true, but if it if it has both or neither of them, then it evaluates to false. Anyway, so that, that's propositional logic, and and you can get super super complicated with it, and maybe we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to Goodall's incompleteness theorem. Cool. So kind of around that same time, uh, we have this device that we found on a shipwreck, I think off the coast of Greece somewhere, called the uh, Antikythera mechanism, and this is this kind of clock-looking thing that was used to predict astronomical events like eclipses and that kind of thing and and you know mm -hmm. where the locations of the planets and could predict them to i think like out like a decade or something like that wow so it's kind of just like a mechanical planetarium yeah so it's like a like i said it's kind of like a clock but there's seven hands for the for the different uh for all the planets and the sun and the moon so all the all the planets that were like visible in ancient times right yeah just mercury venus mars jupiter and saturn cool and each one goes around at the rate at which that body goes around the sun i think that's i think that's right yeah i think that's right and so they can yeah. predict the future phases of the cycles against each other yeah yeah and i'm, I'm not sure if if this mechanism used it or not but another point in ancient greek history this guy ptolemy devised this system for predicting the motion of planets called epicycles and that it's maybe what this was using hmm. but basically epicycles is you know you have a you have an orbit and then you have like an orbit on an orbit and then an orbit on an orbit on an orbit right and you just yeah. like keep refining the measurement that way um which it turns out is like the same idea as as like a as fourier analysis yeah totally <laughs> yeah, you're, you have that com composite waveform comprised of a bunch of waveforms of varying amplitude and wavelength. Yeah, yeah. So by just stacking a bunch of sine waves on each on top of each other, which are just very uh, pure, like it's like a circle, right? It's like so, a circle. Yeah, sine wave uh, is represented on the the unit circle, right? Oh yeah, as just like going straight around the circle. Yeah, I guess so. I I always just think about it as like the, I mean, just like the graph of the waveform, but or like the if you if you had a dot on the outside of a wheel, and mm -hmm. rolled that wheel along, the path that the dot would follow is a sine wave. Hmm. Yeah, trigonometry is crazy with how all that stuff, like connects to triangles and and like why there's two things <laughs> yeah. related in the first place. <laughs> It it blows my mind how mathematical ideological concepts can be represented by physical mechanisms, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like gears representing logic. Mm -hmm. The there's a car part called the differential that gives me sweats when I look at like uh, a diagram of it. <laughs> <laughs> so elegant. Yeah, it's the part that when the car is going around a bend, the outer wheel is traversing more ground than the inner wheel, mm -hmm. right? So it has to go faster over the same amount of time as the wheel on the other side of the car. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a mechanism that smoothly has that attenuating relationship that slows down one wheel as it speeds up the other wheel whenever you're on a turn. And at a rate that varies depending on how much you're turning, right? Wow. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's crazy. <laughs> it's like, have you, have you ever seen the, the Calvin and Hobbes comic where uh, Calvin's like listening to a record and his dad comes in and he's like, 
hey, listening to a record, I'll show you something something cool. <laughs> and he explains, you know, he explains how like the outside of the record is moving at like a faster rate <laughs> than the inside, even though wow. they're, you know, they're rotating at the same RPM. And the last frame is just Calvin like like not being able to go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so true. That that one that one uh, gave gave me that effect as well. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, I, I never. I never thought about that being necessary on a car, but yeah, it's wild. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the ancient Greeks figured out trigonometry too, right? Yeah. Pythagorean theorem, baby. Yeah. And also a lot of musical tuning stuff as well. Yeah, right. Because doesn't that go into how the ancients' idea of music is a greater concept than ours today? Now, now it's literally just like audio but before it was this kind of overarching concept that included like the celestial bodies movement and their relation to each other and also like architecture and geometric patterns in nature yeah yeah it was all kind of all kind of considered to be one one thing with like mathematics and and that kind of thing and and they definitely believed it could like the right kind of music could could change your like psyche and your mind and and you know make you like a better person yeah as long as it's not it's not any of that degenerate you know music the kids are listening to nowadays (laughs) yeah too many (laughs) tritones too much distortion uh and god forbid they play in the dorian mode that's for for pansies (laughs) and and ethans No, give me some good old Lydian. Uh, that that stirs the spirits. Makes me proud to be Grecian. I mean, I mean, they're all they're all church modes. So, like, how how bad <laughs> how bad can they be actually? <laughs> uh, um, bad if you're before there was a church. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So moving on, the next super notable thing that happens is in the like the early 19th century when this guy charles babbage was devising these these really complicated machines based on the same technology that was being used in looms to like coordinate textile fabrication basically Hmm. and and they in the same way they ran on like punch cards and so he the first one he created was called the difference engine and that was it had a very like specific mathematical purpose, which was to calculate something with polynomials, doing math related to polynomials. And the so he he later built this other one called the analytical engine that was more like general purpose, and it was actually like Turing complete. Which we'll talk about what that means mm. later. But basically, like theoretically on this machine, you could calculate anything that you could on a modern computer. If, I guess if you just had like an infinite number of them <laughs> yeah um it, it has all the same components as as you know as modern computers like a cpu and like memory storage and that kind of thing mm. um there's like control flow yeah by cpu i mean that the, the <laughs> uh I, I think that the actual term for it was like the arithmetic logic unit but same same idea and he never i don't think either of them he ever like fully realized but people constructed them later on and and the and they, they like are, are functional and um hmm. yeah and people were writing like programs for them even in his time wow yeah yeah it surprised me to learn this that 
you know, tur- there was a Turing complete machine before Turing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I guess 71. So, like, yeah, that's, like, I guess that would have been, like, 70 years before Turing was doing all the stuff in World War II. Wow. I guess it just goes to show that the, that body of research and, and knowledge mm-hmm. in the in the community went far beyond just, like, one person's genius. You know, it's, it's like, ideas that were pregnant in our culture yeah and it just took someone with the the right mindset and the right drive coming along to to figure it out and put the pieces together yeah yeah and yeah so the kind of programming language this this thing ran on like i mentioned it was on punch cards and the kind of the closest modern modern day analog would be assembly language which we'll get to near the end of this episode Mm. but it's basically the the level of computer language that's only a little bit more abstract than just ones and zeros like that it's the next layer before that and mm. and we'll talk also about how computers work in like layers of abstractions with different like levels of languages and that kind of thing but um but basically doing doing like anything in assembly language is just like a huge pain in the ass because mm. you're like you're so down close to the uh like i said just like the the ones and the zeros and uh yeah, so I so said this first program was actually created by uh, Ada Lovelace, who I think I think she heard about Charles Babbage's work through like a lecture or something, and like she she kind of saw the potential for like using it for things beyond just like mathematical stuff that he was using it for, mm. and um, yeah, they had a pretty like fruitful working relationship, I think. That's awesome. Okay, so yeah, maybe we can move along to, to Turing now because that's kind of where stuff starts to really take off, and so. People are probably like familiar with him. Like there, there was that movie, The Imitation Game, that came out about a few years ago. I love Benedict Cumberbatch. What's that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, his life story is like super, super tragic. If I, I forget, was that part of the movie? Or... Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. So like, I mean, he was he was gay and got, I guess, arrested for for like you know, quote unquote, homosexual acts, and was forced to undergo like like chemical castration and he he like committed suicide a couple of years later i think yeah after so. saving how many people how many millions of people through his contributions yeah yeah no, it's it's yeah it's just absurd and like super super sad that is one of the things about computer programming though it's like you never the impact you could possibly have is potentially so huge mm. you know if you have like the right idea at the right time and even if you don't like have that groundbreaking world changing idea yourself like you're still contributing to not only just a community but i almost want to say a whole new universe like do you ever get that sense that the landscape the terrain of all the code that exists out there all of the development that's happened in the last many many decades is it's like a vast untouchable landscape that you as one individual can only have a rudimentary understanding of you can only know so much and there's just so much out there that goes beyond any one individual's ability to encompass yeah no i, I have that feeling all the time <laughs> i mean yeah it's always humbling because because i mean a lot of people who get into science you know want to do it to to change the world and all that stuff but we're just at a point in science where progress is just so incremental because it's so specific. Like you have to be specialized in this, you know, like sub, sub, sub field to, mm-hmm. to, you know, be actually like moving things forward most of the time. And, you know, 
of course we're still gonna need people who come along who have you know have ideas that no one else has had before and just kind of break everything open but yeah i think it's kind of changed from how it how it used to be when 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 like so many in the 20th century when so many incredible things were being discovered like one after another you know yeah now they're all happening at the same time but there's just so much you can't see it all yeah 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 this is like a huge change at this point but so yeah it kind of seems like that's happening and it's and people talk about exponential progress in technology so much i think it's interesting to think about like what that actually means Mm -hmm. and uh one one of my coding professors this semester uh recommended me to to go check out this guy uh, francois cholet who uh i think he works at he works on machine learning stuff at google now he he created uh keras which is like one of the big python uh machine learning libraries and uh his whole thing is that like you know even if moore's law is happening Mm. the exponential growth in the in the hardware doesn't translate to exponential growth in the abilities of ai right and and there's this related thing about uh exponential curves are like always stacks of s curves that are never actually exponential right because reality is bounded by by certain things and it's also that you know when someone makes a breakthrough like oh cool we can actually do like neural networks now because we have the the processing power like there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that that creates yeah and then like everyone grabs the low-hanging fruit and it seems like you know progress is is like shooting up and like mm-hmm. oh crap we're gonna you know be at the singularity <laughs> soon but um yeah w- I mean, we haven't hit the point yet where like you know making the neural nets bigger and, and more advanced isn't isn't increasing progress but it seems like it's most most of like the people who work on like true artificial general intelligence say neural networks aren't really gonna solve that problem in the end yeah, that was that was really fascinating. Thinking about Moore's law, it it occurred to me re- very recently that the reason why these stack S curves can still average out to be exponential, though, is that each successive breakthrough allows a greater rate of development on the next plateau. Interesting. Yeah, it's not like once you get to the top of the S curve, it's like it's not like you can't make any progress anymore, but it is like there is progress you can make based on on what the progress you just did but it's it's not always clear like what direction to go in i guess so it like takes some time to like figure out yeah what else you need to to do anyway so back to the 1940s <laughs> <laughs> um so pe- people can go look up how he did how turing did what he did which was crack the enigma code that the nazis were using and there's lots of resources about that we'll we'll go over it just a, a little bit because there's there's a lot of detail but Basically, that what made the Enigma code so crazy is that it would, it would encode the same letter two different ways, in the same message, mm. which it made it really hard to crack. And there were like several layers of encryption, so it would like the a certain letter would get changed to another letter by a simple just kind of uh you know this letter corresponds to this letter, and then it gets sent through another series of of transformations, mm. and then like run back through in a certain way, and um and you know it, like. A total of I think like 159 quintillion <laughs> hmm. uh, like possible combinations. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, but it's kind of the the code's kind of fatal flaw was that it would never encode the same letter with itself. Oh. So there there were kind of two parts to it. There was a there was a to the I think, machine. There was like a a series of like three dials with each with like 26 slots on it hmm. that. Uh, would change the letter to a different thing right um and then 
there was a like a kind of like a patch bay type thing that was literally just like okay this letter goes to this letter um and just like 10 pairs the thing that made it so you could figure that out was that the a letter and a message was never encoded as itself like the letter always changed right mm. and so turing figured out that you could use that to systematically test every uh combination of the of the the patches just like the simple patches between two letters mm. and that if you assume something was true like a certain patching was true and then you followed the logic from there knowing about how the three the series of three discs worked mm. that you could then figure out what another match should be given that first match that you assumed and then if you get to a contradiction by doing that process a bunch of times then you know that every combination you just tried is invalid not just like the first one but like all the ones you found and oh, so you wow. can use that to to make the process a lot a lot quicker and and then they figured out how to do that electronically like and just you know with with uh just you know circuit logic that kind of thing that's fascinating i, I never really realized the details of how they figured that out yeah yeah and so their circuits they're using they were just like weren't they just like glass blown vacuum tubes with like electrical charges and stuff yeah it was yeah yeah it was yeah big drums that would rotate with big mm -hmm. me mechanical clunks and stuff mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah reminds me of like the the teleharmonium what's that <laughs> that's that's the uh it's like one of the first electronic musical instruments and it was i think it's based on like the same thing that makes hammond organs work with like tone wheels but just require these like massive massive like um basement like gigantic apparatuses that had to be like housed in the, the basement of wherever the actual keyboard was hmm. and um so the way this thing worked it was before vacuum tubes and so basically they needed a bunch of like huge generators to make the signals <laughs> so it was wow. like a basement full of like generator type things <laughs> <laughs> and the, and this was like transmitted over phone lines for people to listen to hmm. pretty wild um so that's yeah i mean that's that's even older than than turing though it's like 1890 late 1890s so so back to turing so his deal was they could figure out the enigma code but they just couldn't do it fast enough yeah that's what he was working on i think i think they when they finally figured it out they they could break it in like 20 minutes but yeah the thing with the the other thing that made the enigma code so hard to break is that it changed uh like the key changed every day and mm. the only place where you could find the key was was just this paper that was sent out to you know all the all the germans with the, the basically the keys for the whole month hmm. and uh i think it was like water soluble ink so like if you know if anyone got captured or anything they could just you know get rid of it really easily hmm. and and so they had to be able to break it really quickly and i think so they got it down turning got it down to, to like 20 minutes wow yeah so he saved like 14 million lives in the end something Jesus. like that it's like it's it's probably it's like second to only probably to that guy who like didn't push the nuclear launch button during the <laughs> the Cold War. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. So um, Turing really groundbreaking in the war effort, and then sort of became the father of all modern computing. Pretty much, yeah. So, so yeah, he was basically the first one to to really come up with the idea of of what 
artificial intelligence is and think kind of hard about it and and formally about it but uh before even that maybe we should we just talk about the what a turing machine is so a turing machine is basically like the the most basic minimal archetypal form of a computer that's just this head that reads these cells on a on like on a on a tape and the cells on the tape have certain strings of ones and zeros on them strings of bits right and the reader has a list of codes that tell it what to do based on what it reads on the cell and there are different variations and versions of it but it, you know something like write this number here go to this other cell and write this number go to this other cell and you know do whatever it says there that kind of thing um mm -hmm. and so basically on that you can run any like arbitrary program assuming you had a like an infinite length of of tape right yeah like to be able to run any code you need to be able to combine storing things in memory and accessing that memory and executing code yeah anyway so yeah so if, if someone says a uh, a language is turing complete or like you know the analytical engine was turing complete that means it could perform any any computation or program that could be carried out on a Turing machine. Right. And so the other really well-known thing that Turing did was devise what's called the Turing test, which is a lot of the times I think it's like slightly misrepresented or or misunderstood in in the public. Uh, but it kind of it kind of started with Turing trying to ask the question can machines think? Right? And what he kind of decided was that that question doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because you have to define you know what what thinking is mm. but he created this test that could be used to see how competent an ai is at acting like a human right just in mm. terms of like natural language yeah so the turing test is basically you have one person whose job it is to determine which of two other people that they're talking to through some just kind of text interface right which one of them is human and which one is a uh, artificial intelligence mm-hmm and that that's kind of what he settled on as far as being kind of a measure measure of of intelligence a pretty and it's a pretty coarse measure like people have have obviously like refined it and, and critiqued it a lot since he came up with it mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people nowadays have the impression that it's not exactly the milestone that we really need because it's all about like deception yeah <laughs> <laughs> well so so this has just occurred to me based on what you just said but maybe do you think the purpose of this Turing test was not to create a baseline level of intelligence by which to compare artificial intelligence, but rather to illustrate the point that fundamentally and mechanically there is no difference between thinking as it happens within a human brain and as it happens within silicone circuits. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's I think it's kind of assuming that in the yeah it's it's assuming that you can create a a human level general intelligence with with silicon, which, which I, I still I, I still don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean obviously we still don't know the answer to that, right? It seems like you should be able to, but but neurons are are very very complicated and and strange things that we don't really understand yet, right? Mm. So it's it's possible we we need like quantum computers or, or something like that. Yeah it's 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 i mean so some of the shit out there i've seen through with like gpt3 and other artificial intelligence generators though like mm -hmm. it it can fool me <laughs> i mean yeah curated stuff anyway yeah yeah so turing believed that uh 
you know, an AI would be able to pass it by the end of, of the century. Mm. And, and we, we got like robots that can play chess by the end of the century, which I think is pretty, I mean, that that's still blows my mind that, yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, that, that seems like a lot. I mean, it's obviously, it's like a really like particular domain, mm-hmm. but that seems like a way higher measure of intelligence to me than like being able to spit out words that sound like they could have been written by a human. Cause it's yeah. so like, yeah, it's just so like the element of like strategy and that kind of thing mm-hmm. is like, yeah, that seems like a very, very distinctive measure of, of human intelligence. Right. Well, it's it's uh, specific intelligence, right? You have mm-hmm. a very narrow window of where that sort of intelligence works, like on the chessboard. And there's no doubt that humans are, are way dumber than computers in that regard. Um, it's just that the the next frontier now is general intelligence, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's a difference between narrow artificial intelligence and uh, general artificial intelligence or artificial general intelligence. <laughs> artificial general intelligence. <laughs> I heard a funny discussion about what, why it's artificial general intelligence and not general artificial intelligence. <laughs> and the reason is that if it was general artificial intelligence, it would be like gay and they didn't like... What? Like the, the acronym for the, the acronym for. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that was the whole. I think I think one person like proposed that, and. Uh huh. Actually, okay. Wait, I, have to, I have to look this up. I might be... That would be funny if uh, gay heralded the end of all human life. <laughs> Maybe the uh, fundamentalists were right after all. Okay, I can't find it. I think it was like, it had a meaning in, in the language of the person who proposed it, I think. Like, mm-hmm. G-A-I. Um, <laughs> historical. Historical. <laughs> fact. <laughs> if you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Yeah, well, I guess yeah, we can we can kind of move on to to like present day now. So, yeah, like you said, you said you you know it, it fools you, and I've I've definitely seen it like the context of like there's a there's a video we can link to that's that's uh, using that that gives you like two two poems, one of which is written by a human, and one of which is written by GPT three, which is this OpenAI's latest like natural language model, and I I cannot I I had a really hard time telling the difference between the two. Mm. um yeah it was like i think gpt3 always has to have like a prompt or like something at the beginning to get it going yeah. and then it kind of figures out what you want right mm-hmm. um so it was like the first four lines of the poem were written by a human and then the rest was like completed by by the the ai in the same style mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I've seen it where they've done it rather than like giving the first four lines, they give a prompt like ten of the greatest poem poets of modern day release their new poem or something like that. Like that's what's fed uh, into it, and then it'll come up with a poem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean it's it's really it's really wild, but it's also fairly easy to trick it into giving away that it's not another person. Mm-hmm. And I, I only found out about this specific one like fairly recently, but if you, if you ask it things like how many morgels in a sporgle, <laughs> it'll say there are five morgels in a sporgle. <laughs> or, you know, it'll, it'll give you uh-huh. some answer, even though those things don't exist. Uh-huh. Or, you know, you can, you can ask it questions that are obviously, obviously don't make any sense at all. Like, you know, how, how fur- how furiously do colorless green ideas sleep? And they, and they'll answer like they sleep very furiously or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> But I mean, isn't it already starting to like learn context for different words? And once it has developed a large enough library of context of words with like what they relate to and literally what they actually mean, then isn't there a point where it will transcend even that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah, I mean, like I was kind of saying, the answer is we don't really know because we're still getting we're we're still getting improvements out of these when we just keep like adding more data. So like more training data. So like mm-hmm. basically GPT-3 was trained on like the entire internet essentially, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, you know, cost like a gigantic amount of money and, and power and stuff. Um, but yeah, we, we don't know. We aren't, we aren't seeing it, it slope off too much yet on the improvement per, you know, data increase. Wow. But yeah, I mean, they've also discovered that, that just like in the human brain, there's, there's like specific neurons associated with, specific concepts which it's been like back and forth in you know neuroscience where that's actually a thing but it's we figured out that it, it is actually a thing and the same thing's happening in in neural networks so yeah it's yeah it's possible that is that is like understanding and mm. we just you know we, we just don't have a yeah we don't have a good concept of like what understanding is yeah fascinating <laughs> there's also there's also weird things like it's bad at math like it's it's <laughs> <laughs> which uh, honestly though like if you had like you know kids are bad at math <laughs> yeah like if you had if you had you know a system that that you know maybe just like needs to you know learn more or something yeah i mean but, if you like think about the way that you learned math as a kid you know you sort of just throw yourself at it and what the right answers will eventually start to stick and you'll maybe learn a few shortcuts and stuff but most of the time when you're trying to do arithmetic in your head, you're not like sitting down and working through an algorithm to get the right answer. You're just sort of like feeling at it. And oftentimes your instinct is not quite accurate. Huh? What do you mean? Are you talking about like complicated math problems or just like, well, just anything that isn't like, like, like obviously we have the ones that we just memorize the answer to, you know, two plus two, we know it's four because, uh, it it is you know we've seen that so many times we just mm-hmm. we don't even have to do an arithmetic we just like look to our uh, local memory inside our brain and see ah what is the value of two plus two oh it's four um, but you're you're not really really performing the act of addition there you just know the answer yeah yeah you're right I mean well uh, I guess it's hard to know. Like maybe maybe your your brain is performing addition, but it's just in like the the background. So it, like it's so quick and and like 
Well, I, I mean, like, it could be that, but it seems to me, and I think, I don't know, maybe you feel the same way, that there, there, so there's like a number of those arithmetic problems that we've just memorized, and so you just know the answer without having to do the arithmetic. But once you get to higher numbers and uh, harder arithmetic, then you start to get into the territory where if you just guess, you're likely to get a wrong answer. And so you need to then do something else, like have a particular algorithm that you've learned how to do that you'll run that number through in order to break it down in such a way that you can process it and get out the output. Mm -hmm. But like that, that is like a whole nother thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so yeah. maybe when the AI is trying to do arithmetic, it's basically just doing the first approach, you know? see what what your memorized output is likely to be and take a stab at it mm -hmm. yeah that's interesting but um it's not inconceivable that it could at some per certain point store in its memory a function which can be applied to those those arithmetic problems that it doesn't immediately know the answer to and so it, it can learn to actually do that algorithm and figure out what the answer is and return that rather than just guessing yeah that's that's interesting yeah and i think the thing is that it's it's like it's okay at multiplying one digit numbers it's pretty okay at multiplying two digit numbers but it's it's really bad at three digit numbers totally that completely yeah. tracks with, yeah. with that theory yeah yeah because i guess i guess the thing well i guess the thing would actually be like there are lots of examples of like every one digit multiplication problem yeah. on the internet, right? Like all of them are out there mm -hmm. for two digits. Probably most of them are out there Yeah. for three digits. Like at that point, I don't really know, like, mm -hmm. you know, how many of those problems would actually be because there would be uh, a lot like eight, eight, 800 times 800. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot. I don't know. I'm not a computer. <laughs> oh, computer. 64,000? Uh, I think that's right. <laughs> hey. Oh, wait. No, it would be 640,000, right? Really? Four zeros. <laughs> okay, Google. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 640. 640,000? No, it's just 640. <laughs> 800 times 800 is just 640. <laughs> 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 all right well that part will be heavily edited <laughs> <laughs> yeah so so like we said kind of when when turing was coming up with the idea of the turing machine that was basically what would we what we'd call machine code which is just the pure ones and zeros in in binary and mm. so that was in like the 40s and then the next step was like late 40s early 50s and that was assembly language which is what we mentioned when we were talking about the analytical engine mm. and so yeah assembly language is 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 just one level up from machine code so it's still really hard for a, a human to do much of anything that's useful i mean it's useful for like some tasks in in computer science but it, it takes a lot just to you know like multiply two numbers because you actually have to worry about like the the memory addresses in the cpu and that kind of thing 
right. you have to like you kind of have to know how the computer is actually working in mm. terms of of memory and the processing unit and, and that kind of thing and and so the the when you write an assembly language there's a an assembler which converts that into machine machine code right so it's just sort of this algorithm you plug in your your code to and it turns it into the binary yeah yeah and yeah the whole idea is that you have these little kind of mnemonic strings of characters so that human pro programmers can remember what different you know different functions do or you know different keywords do kind of intuitively and not have to remember just you know ones and zeros right thing. so then after that starting in like the 60s we get what are called the like the third generation programming languages so so this is like Pascal and C and basic. And this requires something else called a compiler to get it to machine code. And sometimes, but not all the time, the, the, it'll go through the step of assembly language first. So it'll get like compiled to assembly code and then assembled into machine code. Hmm. So yeah, I, I did not know any of this for like a long time about how computers worked. I think if I had known that's what was happening, I would have been way more fascinated by it, but like, hmm. <laughs> i never it never like occurred to me to ask like how 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 does coding actually work like what's what's actually going on <laughs> right you know which i feel like you just have to understand so much about how computers work to actually like wrap your head around what yeah what is even going on with with coding and, and programming languages yeah it's just one of those mind-boggling things about the scope of it i remember growing up and like having on my laptop sitting there in my lap and like looking at the screen, looking at the keyboard, just thinking, how does that, like, how does that even exist, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how did someone make that? Yeah. And it's, like, sleek, and it's not that heavy, and, like, it looks cool, and... <laughs> when you move your mouse around, it moves around on the screen, and you can open yeah. up folders by clicking on that location yeah. on the screen. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> How does yeah. that even happen? Yeah. It's like generations and generations of people just like building on the work of people that came before them. And like, yeah, so this, the whole idea is, is, yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of people working on programming languages dealing with like very esoteric technical topics so that people who actually program in that language can not worry about any of that stuff and just focus on like the making of, you know, useful applications and that kind of thing. Yeah. That's uh, one thing I've been feeling really a lot in learning JavaScript as I have been through the CodeSmith pre-course program um, compared to the Java that I learned a couple of years ago through the free materials and from the University of Washington, where, for example, in Java, you have to declare your data type for every new variable. So, you know, this is an integer, so you have to use the int keyword when you're declaring that variable. Uh, this is a double, which means it's a floating point value that has double the length of digits to it. And so you have to declare that. And you can't say uh, this double plus that floating point. You can't do that. They're different data types. And you have to have like another keyword to say, well, actually, we're going to convert this floating point into a double and then add the two together. And that is the output. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I yeah I mean I've never <laughs> yeah I've never had to worry about that with C++ so far cuz I mean yeah basically everything we do is just double mm -hmm. and so like yeah I've never used like a floating point variable I don't think right but like compare that to 
JavaScript where there's all sorts of type coercion all over the place. Mm -hmm. You can add uh, integer to tell a string in certain situations and it'll just yeah. automatically convert it into a number and it's just yeah. it's just so freeing arrays <laughs> in java you have to say how long the array is when you declare the array in mm -hmm. javascript yeah let's uh, make it empty add stuff in as you go <laughs> i think this is part of the reason why people don't like javascript or like why it gets a bad rap because it's like oh like you're just not good enough at coding to like, you know, take care of all that yourself. <laughs> like, and I guess not, not that just that, but like you can create like un, there could be like unintended consequences of it being that lenient. Like you can, you could like mess things up in a, in a way that you couldn't in Java when it would like, you know, catch, <laughs> catch things like that for you. You know, that's true. And it's also kind of elitist bullshit <laughs> because I would take not having to worry about type coercion and uh, data types any day over having to worry about that bullshit. <laughs> I, I mean, it, it, JavaScript is like, I mean, it's become like one of the most successful languages and like a lot of, a lot of things are written in it. So like, mm -hmm. it's obviously had like a, a positive impact, I think. Totally. And I, yeah, I mean, it's just uh, a lot easier and more lenient to write in, but I mean, I don't think that makes you like less of a coder. It just allows you to focus on the things that are more interesting and uh, will have a greater impact in the long run. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so tell me more about this CodeSmith thing that you've been doing. Yeah, so uh, CodeSmith is, by the way, not a paid promotion here. We are a nonprofit. We're just doing this for fun. Um, yep. But so CodeSmith is a coding intensive boot camp uh, and there's a bunch of these out there nowadays which is this kind of idea that if you want to, to get into a computer science career rather than having to go back to four years of college get a computer science degree you can just learn what is specifically needed for jobs in the industry and uh, it goes beyond coding knowledge and includes things like technical communication and like how well you work in groups. You know, things that people are actually looking for in uh, when companies are hiring. Right. And so I have currently just been working through the free materials on CodeSmith's website, which includes uh, free workshops that have been really helpful. Um and and exercises you can work through at your own pace it kind of encourages you to google things and learn on your own and it, it, i i really like the learning process so far that's cool yeah yeah learning how to learn on your own is so important it's like pretty much anytime i hear someone giving advice to like computer science students you got to learn how to learn totally because isn't that like what what i keep hearing is that if you get a job in computer science, everything you know about it is going to constantly be evolving. Like every few years, you, you know, you have to learn a new paradigm of like how things ha are done. And yeah, it is just constantly learning new things. There's, there's no point at which you can say, oh, yeah, I, I know everything there is to know about this. Yeah. Yeah. There's just so much complexity and like nuance and stuff. 
and it and that it's constantly evolving yeah yeah so yeah people will debate the the computer science degree versus the boot camp a lot mm-hmm. yeah i was actually i was i was talking to my my uh cody who's my c plus plus teacher for this semester and um he he was i think his impression was that like boot camps tend to be for people that like are trying to make like a mid mid-career pivot to something mm-hmm. but uh like to something specific like ux design um mm-hmm. but yeah so they're they're not always the best option for everyone like i'm <laughs> we talked about it before i'm, I'm doing a, a degree right now yeah um I'm, I'm curious like how much like like do you have to learn about like assembly language and that kind of thing mm. you know i don't know how much they get into it in the intensive i think mm-hmm. well so one of the things that's unique about codesmith and like maybe two other of these coding boot camps is most of them are focusing on web development mm-hmm. uh, specifically a lot of them are front end a lot of them are back end but still web development and some of you know call themselves full stack but mm-hmm. there's just a couple out there that actually focus specifically on software engineering and that means they go a lot more into the computer science elements of it you know the algorithms and more back-end languages like c and java that's cool that's cool yeah i mean there's lots of different kinds of boot camps yeah you're right though that most of the boot camps out there are specifically for people getting into uh subcategory of web web development which you know is is a well needed occupation yeah yeah but perhaps if you're really interested in the technical side of things less interesting yeah 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 the this, this stuff that, that got me excited about computer science was like ai hmm. um and I, I think either like they're you know they're you can they're boot camps for like data science i think but i think those yeah. are I think you also have to, I mean, because there's, you probably have to know a bit about programming already to do something like that, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And, there, and there's just like so much math. I feel like I have to wrap my head around before I can actually understand what's going on with, with neural networks and stuff. Like all of the, there's a bunch of linear algebra involved and, and that kind of thing. Cause there's lots of like matrices. Yeah. Yeah. And talking to my friend, uh, Nicholas, who works at Google currently, he was kind of giving me a rundown of what it's like to work in that environment and it was really really encouraging it was Mm -hmm. uh, he talked a lot about how supportive everyone is and how it it's more about working together in small groups and communicating what you're working through rather than you know being socially isolated in front of a computer for eight hours a day Mm -hmm. Um, and but he was also talking about you know some of the things that he actually needed to use from his computer science degree and said for the most part that you know like his coding ability his like knowledge of java and other languages yes very important and the more mathy algorithmic sort of stuff is not generally used all that much and i've, I've yeah. heard this this sentiment as well from people uh, who have gone through the codesmith program yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, pro- probably depends like which area you're working in, too. Yeah, for but, sure. Um, but yeah, I've I've heard, 
I've heard people say that about like UT computer science students. Like I, I had a couple of guys in my math in my discrete math class last semester that I like uh, who are I think they're both working right now in like computer science and they they were like, yeah, like all the UT kids, like they can, you know, do all these like crazy complicated algorithms and like really theoretical stuff. But like when it comes down to like the practical, really like practical stuff, they're kind of, they can be like helpless sometimes. So it's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, either way, it's, I, I've enjoyed every bit of coding that I've done so far and really excited to do more. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I finally have, uh, like a, a fire lit under my butt to like learn a bunch of, <laughs> of bash bash in this case. <laughs> nice. By the way, I've definitely felt that my ability as a musician has greatly informed my uh, approach to problem solving and my ability to push through when I hit a block and so learn more effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that the the professor I might do research for was was talking about how important that was when we we were on Zoom yesterday. Like, yeah, you're just gonna, you're gonna hit balls, and you have to just be able to like keep keep like trucking. Yeah, I've no like yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, ex exactly the same thing with like writing music. It's like I'm I'm at this place with this piece I'm writing right now, where it's like I can kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel, but it just seems like so hopeless <laughs> that like <laughs> that like it'll. <laughs> you know it'll come together in a way that's like cool um uh, but and honestly compared to compared to that experience of writing music like anything i've come across so far even the extremely frustrating like why just why am i not getting this moments are so manageable in comparison <laughs> yeah in wait in in music or in in, in coding science yeah and it's it's been kind of humbling as well because i've seen you know there's in 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 my class for the, the the prep course before applying to codesmith there's people who come from all sorts of backgrounds and experience levels and i've noticed on occasion some people you know feeling showing that they are like legitimately trying and like crestfallen that they're not getting it and it's like mm -hmm. i i get it i feel i feel that and i felt that and i'm also so grateful to have this skill set from music that allows me to work through that yeah 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 I mean, that's why it's good to teach teach people music definitely for sure so we'll do at least one more episode kind of following up on this one about just kind of current events in ai and and <laughs> coding and all that stuff that'll be exciting yeah yeah, yeah. we're living in a very interesting world.